Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, if you do, not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask now that you would, as we have sung and as we have prayed, speak it to us. Speak to our hearts and help us to see all that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. In the house I grew up in, uh, the house that my parents still live in today, in the kitchen is a fireplace. And above the fireplace, up above the hearth, is a a large mirror. It goes the length of the fireplace. And it is, um, you know, when you're a kid growing up, everything's bigger. And then you grow up and you go home and you think, everything shrunk. Um, I don't know. The mirror's probably six feet wide, but it's big. And when I was tall enough to stand up on my tippy toes and look in the mirror, that was quite an accomplishment. But in my teenage years, and this was true for all my siblings, but I'll only pick on me this morning, in my teenage years, that mirror became a teaching tool for my mom and dad, particularly my dad. Because when he was correcting us and we were mad, he would tell us, look in the mirror, look at your countenance. That's what he would say. And so when I came to this passage this week to prepare, I couldn't help but think of that. Because what Dad was showing us was that our face was saying something. Without saying a word, because we were probably too afraid to say that we were mad at him, or that we were grief-stricken or felt guilty about our sin, our face said it all. 
And as soon as we turned and looked in the mirror, we could see exactly what he was talking about, that our actions were indeed speaking louder than our words. Um, This was what Cain experienced. Cain sinned against God, and God came to him and said, you know, your face, what's happened to it? Scripture says that his face fell, that it was written indeed all over his face. I think most of us can identify with a story because we've experienced this. We've experienced what it means to be guilty, what it means to feel the guilt and the shame of our sin. I think we can also identify with the fact uh, that Cain did not deal with the sin, but he looked inwardly to his own flesh instead of looking up to God in faith, and he spiraled downward into more sin, flat out lied to God. I, I don't know just told him a lie. He knew everything about God, but this is what sin does to us. Sin deceives us. Sin twists our minds. It takes us in a cycle downward into deeper and deeper sin if it's not dealt with. So this account of the first murder, and isn't it interesting that we're only up to persons three and four, (laughs) and we've already got a murder. If that shows you the effects of sin, I don't know what does. Uh, But sin comes from the heart. We tend to focus on the act of murder here, but the problem was, was Cain's heart. And that's exactly where God goes. He goes right after the heart. And I think it's important for us to do the same thing today. Jesus taught on this when he came to the religious leaders of his time who had kind of prided themselves on the notion that, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? You know, you, you try and speak about the gospel of the hope and... What are they saying? They're saying, I'm not so bad. I mean, there are people who are much worse than I am. And so the people of Jesus' day, particularly the religious people, did this. And Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, Jesus shows us what the point of the Ten Commandments was about all along. I mean, the law does something wonderful for society in that it protects us. Nobody wants to be murdered, no one wants to be stolen from, no one wants to be lied to. But it was never just about creating a stable society, a utopia as if there could be one on earth, because it has to deal with the heart. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here, and it's exactly what God does with Cain Uh, as he goes after him in these questions. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing that we think, nothing that we say, nothing that we do. And while there may be not anyone in this room this morning that's ever murdered anyone, all of us have known the anger that was in Cain's heart. All of us have known the envy that was in his heart. And sometimes we, we don't even realize it's there until we have gone down some road a bit and realized how angry we've become. And sometimes it comes out and we're shocked by it. And I think that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of God's grace in our lives when we blow up in anger and then our own heart confronts us with how the propensity toward evil is there in all of us. So in the text that's before us, we need not look merely at the external act of murder. Um, I'm saying this again, it's probably the third time now, we've got to go after the heart. So you see where I'm going this morning. We've got to get after the heart. And not just Cain's heart. This has got to come toward our heart. 
And so my prayer is that this morning God would do that work in us that only he can do. So we begin with the birth of Cain, and you know your imagination kind of runs wild a little bit here. This was the first birth. I don't know if, uh, if God gave Lamaze classes or did any kind of birth coaching or whatever. I don't know if they had seen livestock being born, a gestational period of animals, some is shorter. Maybe they had seen it. Maybe they knew what was coming. I mean, as the belly grew and the kicking and, you know, inside the womb, all of this, I mean, what did Adam and Eve really understand about what was to happen? And then all of a sudden, pain of childbirth, here comes Cain. And the pain, you mothers know this, and you describe this, that there's this incredible pain, but then there's this incredible joy uh, when the birth of the child comes. And it's interesting what she says, I've gotten a man. It's the only where in Scripture, only place in Scripture, that a baby is referred to as a man. The word there is man. But this is what Eve knew. Eve looked at the baby, and she looked at Adam and said, this is like his dad. This is, this is a man. Uh, the, maybe the, this is the beginning of the vocabulary for a baby. It hadn't even come into existence. But then what she says next is even a little more interesting. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And in my studies this week, I found that there were a number of people who thought this was arrogant and prideful, as if Eve is saying something like, uh, you know, I got this man, I got this baby, I accomplished this, but with God's help. Almost like, yeah, I did the work, but, you know, God helped me through the process. And as I thought about that, I was, I was troubled a little bit because the text doesn't tell us that that was the case. Uh, but then I think when we look back, when we, when we zoom out a little bit, and this, this, is, this is an indication to us as we come to Scripture, we don't need to bring our ideas into Scripture. We need to let Scripture speak to us. And so the difference of eisegesis when we come to Scripture with our own ideas and lay them on top of Scripture and try and interpret it as opposed to exegesis. We let the Scriptures inform us. And so if we back up just a little bit, and particularly what we saw in the end of chapter 3, what was Adam and Eve's response to God? When he promised to him, even in the judgment, he promised to both of them that there would be a Redeemer. And then what was Adam's response? It was that awkward verse that we saw that didn't really seem to belong. There was kind of a juxtaposition that Adam gave his wife a name, Eve, because she was what? The mother of all living. The, the root for Eve is, or the name Eve comes from the root for life. And, and, and as I said last week, the indication here is that Adam and Eve were trusting God to do what he said he would do, that the promise would come through Eve through her giving birth, through life. And as we saw last week, our timetable is not God's timetable. And I think it's quite fair to think that Adam and Eve thought this would happen sooner than later. They didn't imagine that it would be thousands of years before the Redeemer would come. And so this idea that I did this with the help of the Lord was an indication to say that it was really God who did this. It was really a statement of faith, a statement that she was trusting God and that I think there's some hope here that maybe this is the one. You said that it was through my seed that the serpent's head would be crushed. Okay, here it is. Is this the one? And of course, there's going to be disappointment, isn't there? (laughs) This isn't the one. And it's not only not this one, but it's going to be some time before the one actually came. Not long after, Abel comes on the scene. We don't know how much time, at least... 10 or 12 months before this happened, but there may have been more time there, but now he's got a brother. And both sons grew up, 
we're passing history really fast. A lot of things are happening. We don't get a lot of details. But Cain follows in his father's footsteps as a farmer, and Abel took up caring for sheep. Um, and then comes, the text says, at a point in time, which is indicative of something like the turn of a season or something happening. And so I think what, what, um, what, what's, what's going on here is this was probably the end of some season that the boys had been taught by their dad that this is what you do. You thank God for how he's provided for you and you bring an offering. No sacrificial system has been instituted yet. So this isn't a sacrifice. This is an offering that these young men, these boys brought to God at this point in time. And Cain's offering, the text says, was of the fruit of, the, of his work, the fruit of the ground. So fruits, vegetables, whatever those things were. Likewise, Abel's offering was of his fruit, uh, uh, rather uh, the fruit of his work, that is the firstborn of his flock. As I mentioned, there's no sacrificial system. This was simply a way of thanking God for his provision. It wasn't that Abel's offering was a blood offering and that Cain's wasn't that made it acceptable. If you notice in the text what it actually says. Um, It says in verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering? No, it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And then in the next verse, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You see, the regard was for Abel. The The lack of regard, disregard was for Cain. It was the person. It wasn't the offering. It was really a matter of the heart, which is what my point is today. Whatever instructions Adam had given to his sons, whatever had you know, been given by God to, to Adam to do these things, we don't have that information. Uh, but this was likely not the first offering that they brought. This had probably become a pattern, either with the seasons or with some kind of regular um, See a regular routine. But the offerings themselves are tied to the person. They're tied to the person's heart. Cain's offering is described simply as an offering of the fruit of the ground. He brought some of the stuff. And look at how Abel's offering is described. Abel's is the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. What's the difference here? Cain brought an offering while Abel brought the best of his to offer to God, of their fat portions. This would, have been, this would have been his prized possession, the firstborn. This would have been the blue ribbon lamb. This would have been the one to hold on to, not to give up. And so it was something, the offering itself demonstrated something about where his heart was. In verse 4 again, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard And if there's any question about the status of Cain's heart, the next few words reveal what he was really thinking. Cain was very angry and his face fell. His face says it all. His countenance expresses exactly what was in his heart. And we'll see that it's not only anger, but it's envy that his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. I will stop here and just say that some of us look at this and go, well, of course. I mean, if my offering wasn't accepted, I would be angry and envious too. But the problem was he, didn't, he wasn't angry, and the problem in his heart didn't start with this here. The problem in his heart, even though the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, was there before. 
We see it in the fact that he brought just some of his offering. There wasn't really a sense of gratefulness. He didn't bring the best, as, as Abel's is described. But also, in what happens next, we see where his heart really was. Well, the anger is there. God comes to him as a loving Heavenly Father. It's a loving Father who corrects his children. And that's exactly what God does. God doesn't come and say, you brought the wrong item. That your, your item isn't correct. He actually comes and talks to him about what was in his heart and shows him that's where the problem is. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God's question to him of if you do well, will you not be accepted demonstrates that Cain has this opportunity for repentance. It's faith and repentance. You know, a lot of us see the gospel as something that happened to us way back in time when we confessed and believed and trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And that what happened is gotten us, we've got security, we've got you know, jokingly say things like fire insurance, you know, we're not going to go to hell, we've got eternal life. But we forget that the gospel is not something just here back in time, it's for right now. It's for today. You need the gospel today. And you need the gospel tomorrow. Because you need a savior. It isn't that God fixed the problem and then that you get a chance to do your best and to, and to contribute and, and, and do, you know, do your 1%. God, Jesus did it all. He finished and completed everything. And so the hope of the gospel message that you and I need today, the way it's exhibited is in faith and repentance. And so what Cain needed right here was an application of the gospel. He needed to, to stop, and God came to him in a fatherly way, and he's like, listen, it's, it's, he personifies sin. It's crouching at the door. And if you do well, you'll be accepted. In other words, if you will trust my words, faith, if you'll believe what I'm saying to you, faith, and turn, repent, don't let sin get the upper hand, then you'll be accepted. So here's this gospel message of faith and repentance, even right here in the very first lines of Genesis, for Cain to trust God and believe Him. Unfortunately, Cain doesn't. This, this act is all grace, God speaking these words to him. Um, God adds to the loving question, if you, do not, or if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God gives him a little theology right here about original sin. And original sin was, wasn't, wasn't so far ago. I mean, for us, original sin goes all the way back to Adam and to Eve. But for Cain, it's just his parents. I mean, they're the ones that brought all this into the world. I mean, who wouldn't love to blame their parents for all their problems? Cain had this opportunity right here because he describes the problem of sin, that we all have this propensity to hate God and to hate our fellow man, which is exactly what Cain's doing. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism in question five, after describing what God's law is and what it does, says, can you keep all of this, God's law, perfectly? And the answer is no, for I am by nature prone to hate God and my neighbor. It's exactly what Cain's problem was. And the proof text that the Heidelberg gives, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, none who understands, no one who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. 
And Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. As a son of Adam, Cain and Abel were both born sinners. But where Abel came with a heart of thankfulness and faith, Cain did not. You see the difference there in terms of their approach. And we see the fleshly outworking of it. We see the effects of it in in the world, what had been there in their heart all along. And God comes to Cain and shows him, there's still time. You still have a chance. You can repent. Trust me. Don't listen to your flesh. That anger that's ruminating in your heart, that's all the emotion. In other words, speak to your heart. Don't let your heart speak to you. One of the big lies of the world, listen to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. (laughs) Be really careful listening to your heart. Your heart will do exactly what it did to Cain. No, speak truth to your heart. Use the gospel to speak to your heart because sin is crouching at the door. And listen to it. Its desire is to rule over you. I mean, Satan is not even mentioned here, but yet he is. I mean, you can almost see him personified as someone crouching like a lion. Remember, he's later described like that as a lion who seeks to devour, prowling around. But also this desire that has a desire to rule over you. There's a war that's going on. And the response that Cain needed to have was to repent and to trust God, to take him in his word. Well, there's no response, is there? The text doesn't give us any response. There's just silence. And in his silence, he reveals his refusal to trust God. Instead of looking up in faith, he looks inwardly to his own heart, to his own lust, to his own desire, and he follows his flesh. And that is a challenge that every one of us knows on a daily basis. This is the battle against sin. The battle in our own hearts. So this is really, really practical for us. Because what the Word of God does for us is exactly what God's Word to Cain did for him. It comes and it corrects. It comes and gives hope. It comes and shows the way to go. And then we only have the opportunity then to trust God at His Word in faith and repent of our sin in turn and we'll be accepted. Right? It's not that it's based on works, but God is showing us the way to fight sin. And every one of us knows this battle. Not, not on an annual basis, not on a weekly. This is a battle on a daily basis. So we too choose whether we look to God in faith or we look inwardly and follow our own flesh. And if we do the latter, of course, we follow in Cain's example and his demise. And so in verse 8, we see Cain just continued to follow his plan. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. We don't know what he said. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain refused God's gracious words of life to him. He instead walked willfully into the sin that by through which would end his brother's life and change his life forever. It would rewrite the course and the direction of his life. And this is, while it's a historical event, Cain really did kill Abel. There is also some illustrativeness to this story in that it shows what was happening and and, and what God promised all along, that there would be this animosity that would run the thread of history, where brother would rise up against brother, where man would rise up against man, where there would be the sin, because that was the work of the evil one. And that's still the work of Satan today. He's a vandal. He, He loves to wreak havoc. Even though he's defeated, uh, he's on a chain, Uh, It's not a long chain, but he loves to make a mess. And and he does it in the same way that he is tempting 
Cain in this passage. So Cain sins. He kills his brother and God comes to him like he did to his parents after they sinned. But notice how different Cain's response is from his parents. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You can imagine Cain thinking maybe that he had kept it a secret. Maybe they went far off. They were in a field, so maybe they were away from anyone seeing them and that he thought for a moment that no one else knew about it. Of course, nothing is hidden from God. He knows all. He sees all. God didn't need to ask Cain where Abel was. He didn't need to ask Cain for any information. God had all the information. He always does. He did this for Cain's benefit. He did this so that Cain would come to repentance. But then think about the difference. When God came to Adam and Eve, what did they do? They pointed fingers, yes. They blamed everyone. In fact, they blamed everyone because there weren't many ones at this point. So they literally, I mean, we use that kind of hyperbolically, but they literally blamed everyone but themselves. But at least they admitted what they did. They both said, I eat the fruit. They didn't lie. They acknowledged what they did. Cain doesn't do that. Cain says, flat out, lies, I do not know. And then he adds to it in almost this attempt to manipulate and deceive, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, you can almost hear the tone in how he might say this. If you've raised children, you know exactly what this is, right? You walk in the room, there's the guilty face. You, you may know who the guilty party is. And instead of responding in truth and responding with repentance and a desire to change, there's deflection. What? Huh? Not, not me. You know, am I my brother's keeper? There's anything but the honest answer. And, um, uh, and this continues, unfortunately, into adulthood for some people. This is, uh, we would call it a sign of immaturity, that when someone continues to live their life this way, that they can't face and deal with consequences, that they're constantly looking not only for people to blame, but they're constantly lying and deflecting, like, uh, no, that's not me, you know, I didn't, no, oh, no, what, what, what am I? I mean, we see this, and it's, it's unhealthy living, it's, it's unwise. Our sinful hearts lead us to self-preservation. Know this about your heart, that sinfully, when you sin, your desire is to protect yourself. That's why we lie to cover a lie. That's why we blame others. That's why we deflect, because our desire is to protect ourselves. And in doing so, we continue to sin further and further. But there's no hiding from the the truth from an omniscient God, is there? The next words to God, uh, from God to Cain are almost verbatim what exact, exactly what God had said to, to Eve when she sinned. He says, what have you done? In Genesis 3, he said to Eve, what is this that you have done? But in the same way, it's as much an exclamation as it is a question. And it's a rhetorical question. It wasn't meant for an answer because it's followed by the statement, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice, the word for voice is like the word hark which is not a word that we regularly use anymore. It's almost Shakespearean to us now. But we all, I think, understand what it means. It's the idea of calling out for attention. Hey, you know, when someone wants to get your attention, hark. And that's what God God is saying that his blood is doing. Again, it's almost personified as calling out from the ground. It's crying out to God. 
Later as we get to to chapter 9 in Genesis, we're going to see something about where the value of human life comes from. And we've talked about this some already, but I'll mention it again. In Genesis 9, God shows exactly where our worth and value comes from. He says to Noah when he institutes capital punishment at this point, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The value and the worth that we possess, the reason that capital punishment is given to the authority, to the government, uh, God says is because God is, man is made in the image of God. Even though we know nothing is hidden from God, that he knows all, that he sees all, the passage demonstrates that God cares out of all of creation, God cares uniquely for humans because they're made in his image. And so that's why he says the blood is calling out. So anytime a man or a woman is killed, is abused, is tortured, is defiled, God hears the voice of the one made in his image calling out to him. The abuser, the murderer, the defiler will not go unpunished. And yet God doesn't kill Cain on the spot. He doesn't take his life from him. We're going to see that his judgment is actually going to be over time. It's going to include living under God's judgment, but it's also going to include this fear of man that, that, that Cain describes in the, in, the, in the final verses. And now he says, you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain is actually called cursed. It's one of, I think, only two places in the Bible. I could only find two places where God curses a man. All the other curses are from man to man. But here God pronounces a curse on Cain. And the curse itself is tied to the curse that's already been placed on the ground. And so there's this double whammy. There's some kind of tie-in to the fact that the earth swallowed up the blood, that now Cain is going to have to work even harder. The curse is almost going to be doubled down on him uh, in how he works the ground. He says the, 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 the ground will no longer yield to you its strength. He's going to have to work harder. He's going to have to sweat more just to get the food that he needs to eat. And then additionally, he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, that he would have no place to call home. In other words, Cain is going to be a man on the run looking over his shoulder. Why? Because he's fearful that someone's going to come for vengeance. And he expresses this to God, this fear of retribution by future siblings or even his own parents that they would come. And he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear in verse 13. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Um, I have little pity for Cain at this point. He sounds to me like a whiner. Uh, he's unrepentant, he's brash, and now all of a sudden he's self-pitying. Uh, pitying. That he's like, oh, it's too much for me. You just killed your brother. God should have taken your life from you right then. I mean, that's what you deserve. The fact that he didn't is all mercy. But God was gracious to Cain, not just simply to show his mercy. I mean, Cain rebelled against God. He murdered his brother But God did this to protect his own glory. He now is acting like a victim. And don't people, when they get caught, often do this? Again, we would call it a sign of immaturity when adults do this. 
Uh, my kids give me a hard time because I like to watch cops. All this stuff is on every episode. The, uh, why me? me? No, it's not mine. It's my bro- Am I my brother's keeper? The deflection, the lying, the shifting of the blame, and then this. Oh, once they're in the back of the car with the cuffs on, then all of a sudden everybody wants mama and is crying, right? They're all just, have mercy on me. I didn't mean it. I, you know. and, and you see this played out, not just there, but we see this in, in so many spheres of life. Cain was a murderer, and now he feels the weight of that and says, my punishment is too great. This is not God-honoring repentance. This is simply fleshly regret. It's just, I'm, I'm sad I got caught. It's a fear of, I don't want anything more bad to happen to me. I don't want anything worse to happen to me or more bad things to happen to me. And remarkably, God shows him even more mercy. In verse 15, then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, we don't know what the mark of Cain was. People have speculated uh, tattoo, some kind of birthmark, this kind of thing. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, I will take a second to say that, unfortunately, in our own history, there were those who tried to use this passage to support racism uh, and slavery. And that is illogical, it is ridiculous, and it's heinous. Please don't ever use Scripture to support racism in any capacity. Okay, Adam and Eve weren't white. <laughs> I don't know why people didn't realize this, that if you think of this from a scientific standpoint in terms of them possessing all of the gene uh, 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 combinations for every skin tone that would ever follow. If you just look at it from a scientific standpoint, as the mother and father of all living, or if you just look at it from where they were, what part of the, the world were they from? There aren't any white people there. Okay, don't ever use scripture to support racism in any way whatsoever. Whatever the mark was, it was effective, and it wasn't about the mark. It was about the fact that God was protecting Cain. It was another mercy, uh, 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 this, this um, protection uh, from retaliation. And while it was a grace and a mercy to Cain, it was again a protection of God's own glory, uh, that, that no one would be able to take, the, take on the act of murder in vengeance against Cain. Even though he was unrepentant, he was still made in the image of God. Um, now, God does institute capital punishment later. He gives that, though, to the governing authority. It's never, in, it's never our personal uh, allowance or opportunity to take capital punishment into our own hands. That is for the government. Uh, but here's where the application is for us in this regard. That hate that rose up in Cain's heart, that envy that rose up in Cain's heart, can rise up in our hearts too. And so remember how God came to Cain when you are tempted for this to happen. I always talk about driving. Let me pick on something else. What about when you're online and you're reading political posts or you're watching a certain news television show? You ever feel anything rise up in your heart then? Maybe not all of you, but some of you know what I'm talking about because you're nodding your heads. And what do we typically do? We begin to talk about those people, them. We start just, just putting everybody together and we start hating and speaking hatefully about those people that don't agree with us about whatever issue it is. Don't let these things brew 
in your hearts. The family reunion. You've all got that one cousin or that one uncle that's always going on, right? Don't let these things brew in your heart. Don't guard your heart. Sin is knocking at the door and its desire is to rule you. Sin wants its way in. Don't let the door open. Now, Cain would go on to the land of Nod, and we'll see what that involves in, in the following week. It, the, the land of Nod, is the word is simply means wandering. It's a land of fugitives. Cain would be continue to be, just as God said, a wanderer. He would never really know a home. And the sentence is a life of turmoil that in itself would be its own judgment. He would live. He would create a society. Uh, but as we'll see, the society gets, goes off the hinges very, very quickly. Uh, in the passage that we'll look at next week. This isn't the only place that we see Cain and Abel in Scripture. Um, This was the end of Abel's life, but we hear about him again. We also hear about Cain again. In John, 1 John, rather, chapter 3, this is John's first epistle, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John is exegeting Genesis for us here. He's teaching us what Genesis is all about. And he says that Cain was of the evil one. Cain followed in his flesh. He followed what Satan wanted for his life. And then he explains how this tension, and God told he, he told Adam and Eve that this was going to happen, that it was, it was going to go through, through all the centuries. And don't we see that? We see Abel and we see Cain. Soon we see Isaac and we see Ishmael. All of these brothers, Jacob, Esau, wheat, tares, sheep, goats. This same thread. And that's why next week's sermon is two ways to live. We find that there are, are two ways, two paths to consider as we go through life. John explains that the envy that was in Cain's heart is, is, is tied into the fact that you and I are going to be hated by the world. Cain, notice, he hated Abel because Abel's offering was righteous. Because Abel acted in righteousness, Cain hated him for no other reason. And so John says, don't be surprised then when the world hates you. So if you follow Christ, the world will hate you. Don't be intimidated by this. Don't be afraid of this. Don't go into the us and them category, though, and start hating them back and acting hatefully. Because the the whole point of John's message was to love, wasn't it? Uh, But don't lose hope. The other passage I want to mention in closing mentions Abel. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What? <laughs> Where's the writer of Hebrews? How's he going all the way back to Abel and now coming in and connecting this to Jesus? If you remember, Abel's blood spoke from the ground. Hark, it called out. Hey, it wanted the attention, in a sense, of God. But all it could do was cry out for justice. All it could do was say an injustice had been committed. All that blood could do was cry out. But Jesus' blood 
could redeem. Jesus' blood could justify. And that's what the writer tells us here, that there was one who would come whose blood was better than Abel's. This blood justifies. This blood of the new covenant speaks a better word. This blood, born of a woman, as promised, has come and has been spilled. The blood of Jesus shed for the sins of all of his people to atone for all of our sins, our anger, our envy, our murder. And then in Hebrews 10 we read, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This has been one long sermon about the bad news. Don't you feel that? I mean, don't you the sense that it's like, where, this, we need to come and we need to hear this good news of what Jesus has done. The problem is, if we don't understand the bad news, if we don't understand the seriousness of the sin in our own heart, the good news doesn't sound so good. It's just kind of, blah. But when we come and we see not only Cain's problem as being a heart problem, but our problem right, right next to him, right alongside him, that we too need a Savior, that we too need to be called in faith and repentance. Then we see the glory of the blood of Christ. Then we see that he is faithful, that he has overcome, and that we can rest completely in his finished work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause the good news of the gospel to ring in our ears as we go today. I do pray that you would help us to be on guard to, to, to see sin for what it is and to set a guard over our hearts that we would not allow it to enter in, knowing that it crouches and its desire is for us. May we not look inwardly to our own emotions and our own hearts for direction in our lives, but may we look upwardly to you in faith and repentance to know how to respond to temptation, to know how to respond even to injustice and the wrong things that have been done to us and the hurts and the pains that we live with, live with, to know even how to respond to bad things when they happen, to look to you and say, I'm trusting you, Father. I'm taking you at your word. I pray that we, in that way we would be like Abel, that we would walk in faith and repentance. But Lord, may we never forget our need of a Savior, day in, day out, that we need you, Jesus. We need you as our Savior and Redeemer, and we need your power through your Spirit in our lives to live in ways that are pleasing to you. And so we confess that and we call on your power in our lives today that we would live in a way that pleases you, that others might see our good works and glorify you in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.